You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey, fan people. Aaron Roverman here. I know I'm coming at you at kind of a sad time for comic fans with no new comics on the shelves and many comic stores around the world closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But there are some comics available digitally, and I want to hip you to one of them that I think you're really going to enjoy. It's called Project Impact. It's about a government-sponsored superhero team protecting Canada from superhuman threats. Uh, There's two issues out so far on Comixology. The first concerns the team going up against a team of evil superhumans who have taken over a hydroelectric dam in Niagara Falls. The second issue focuses more on team member Sizem as he works to control his powers, and team leader Pulsar, who gets called to stop a superhuman incident at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. You could probably already tell, but you're going to like this if you like things like Pitiful Human Lizard, North by Scott Sire, uh, Christopher Yao's Major North, because it uses actual locations from across Canada as opposed to just New York, Metropolis, or Gotham City like you see in uh, comics from Marvel and DC. So check it out on Comixology. It's by Alan Roussette, who's the writer, and Stefan Peterson, who's the artist, with a rotating cast of colorists and letterers on each issue. Uh, For the first issue, they have Gary Scott Beatty, doing the colors and letters, and then for the second issue, we have Linda Scott Campbell doing the colors, and Richard Lumsden doing the letters. Uh, You can also follow them on social media, they're at Impact Comic on Twitter, and they're at Project Impact Comic on Facebook and Instagram. Check it out on Comixology, it's called Project Impact, two issues available now, just so you don't get bored during your uh, social distancing practices. And tell them Aaron sent you. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us, as always, on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play. Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. We're also on Spotify, if you prefer to listen to us there. Obviously, I am not in studio today due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I do have an interview for you, and it's quite a doozy. 
I mean, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. The person that you're about to hear is, you know, one of the top writers. And when I said that to Chip Zdarsky, like, who the top three writers were at Marvel, I didn't think I'd be interviewing this person so soon. But before all public events were cancelled, and before the Toronto Comic Con was postponed, I did get a chance to interview Al Ewing all the way from the UK. Because it's in the UK, it is a phone interview, so it's the first time we've ever done a phone interview on Speech Bubble. Al also, because he's from Britain, has a very thick accent, so he might be a little bit hard to understand at times, but I couldn't pass up this opportunity because Al is the writer on Immortal Hulk, which is probably, in my opinion, the best book that Marvel is publishing right now, bar none. It's a Eisner award-winning, best ongoing series, I believe. It even defeated Batman and took the number one spot at the top of the comic book sales charts for a time. So Immortal Hulk is a special book. It reinvents the Hulk in a sort of horror way, a way we'd never seen before. It's really amazing. If you haven't checked out Immortal Hulk, please do. Al Ewing is the writer. I mean, he's done other things. He wrote Avengers No Surrender with Mark Wade and uh, past speech bubble guest Jim Zub. That is, in fact, where Immortal Hulk makes his debut and, you know, what kicks off the ongoing Immortal Hulk series. You have to check out Immortal Hulk. This is the book that probably is changing Al's career. He's now tasked with writing Marvel's new big event. He's uh, co-writing it with Dan Slott. It's called Avengers Fantastic Four Empire. That was supposed to come out. It's still on the slate, but with uh, Diamond Distributors canceling all new comic orders uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, who knows when we'll start seeing new comics again. Obviously, uh, after this pandemic is successfully defeated. But let's not think about that. Let's go into this interview. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's not the usual hour, half an hour interview we do, but again, it's Al Ewing, and any chance you get to uh, pick the brain of Al Ewing or even hear what he has to say is one you should take. First, I asked him about what drove him to comics as a child. Certainly when I was growing up, there was a good tradition. Basically, every kid at some point read a comic. I want to say comic, I mean, things like the Beano or the Dandy. I don't know if they're uh, so well known, but uh, these are sort of British humor anthologies of like one page scripts. You know, every kid would sort of read something like that for a while, but it was just seen as a sort of, you know, a kind of uh, a childhood thing. I think in the States it's, um, it's very similar, or it was, with, you know, super comics around that time. So it's, it's a very similar thing. I mean, I think when I got into, obviously, 2000 AD was a huge thing in Britain. But also around the time I was reading comics, they were reprinting uh, Secret Wars, which was the you know the big Marvel crossover in the eighties, and they were reprinting that in a in a British format with sort of backup strips of like other 
other model coming from the time, you know, things like Delta Flight. There wasn't a thing where it was like comics were a hobby. Like, it wasn't like getting into uh, model trains or anything like that. It wasn't a thing you had to sort of make an effort to be into. It was kind of expected of you that you'd read comics. It was also expected of you that eventually you would stop reading comics. And I never, never quite did, so there is that, I guess. But um, getting into comics, I was just the same way literally everybody else like you did. From there... I went a little deeper and asked him why he became so enamored with the comic medium specifically uh, when he could have done other things like, you know, painting or written a novel or something like that. I just basically that you can do pretty much anything with it. Uh, there's, there's kind of no other medium you can really say that about, you know, if you've got a writing instrument and a surface, you can do pretty much anything there. So, you know, that that's very similar uh, to comics. But, you know, with film, you need, you know, you need a camera, with music, you need an instrument. With a lot of other mediums, you need equipment, you need a certain outlet. With comics, you pretty much can do it with just a piece of paper and, you know, something to write with or draw with. And, you know, you can, can do it all yourself. I used to sort of get a piece of paper and a borrowing, you know, fold it a few ways and then I had a little booklet. I could kind of put that together and, and make that into a comic. I think I think there are there are barriers to getting published and getting paid to do comics, but in terms of actually making just making a comic, if you know, if that's if it's the medium that you're interested in, there are, there are no barriers. You can create a comic right now. Then we started talking about the beginning of his career and what began his transition from comic book fan to comic book professional. I had an idea I wanted to do it quite early. There was a point, I think, where I, I kind of had an idea that I wouldn't mind being a comic writer, but I didn't really know what the first step was. And then 2018, he published the submissions guideline, as they kind of periodically do. And I think that was the first time it really occurred to me that it might be as easy as just sending a script off. TCASME is the only, the only company that do that. But I think with anybody else you need to pitch, or you need to kind of link up with an artist and put something together. So with TCASME, six months of the year the submissions are open, you just need to write a full-page twist-ending story, science fiction or horror, send it through, it'll go into the slush pile, and, you know, theoretically, if it's good enough, it'll go into the comic, and that's very few and far between that that happens. It's not like an automatic thing by any means, but at the same time, that's how I got my start, so it is possible. And I think people have managed it since, you know, in the intervening years. Finally, it was time to talk about what everyone, I'm sure, in this interview is waiting for. We needed to talk about the Immortal Hulk. First, I wanted to know about his goals for the series, and how it began, with what Jim Zub said on our podcast, a huge whiz-banger of a pitch to him and Mark Wade when they were working on Avengers No Surrender. So I wanted to ask Al how this pitch happened, and how this idea of Hulk being immortal came to be. I mean, what basically happened was the Bruce Banner was, you know, he was dead, he'd been killed off in Civil War II, and he'd been resurrected a couple of times, you know, quite soon afterwards. But the trouble was, we had to kind of resurrect the wheel, 
and that was where that was going to happen. But my pitch, as I remember, was that he, you know, the hog just, what if he just didn't die? You know, what if um, these weren't resurrections, they were just like him coming back? You know, not because anyone had done anything, but because that's just what he did, which suggested a kind of horror angle. And I think, yeah, basically, Avengers knows some handle. I very quickly kind of magnified the whole kind of cool bits. I was using that as a kind of bench test to sort of show how that concept would work and how a scary Hulk could sort of operate. Then I, I dug a little deeper on this immortal idea and wanted to know, why did you make him immortal in the first place? Why was that choice made? Oh, well, no, that was that, that just came out of circumstance. That just came out of the death. We needed a way out of that, and it was just like, if he'd been starting from another place, like from an exile, or if he was just wandering around, if he just hadn't had a comic, we might have come up with something, something else. Like I say, you know, we had this, we had this problem of how to resurrect him, and that generated an idea that sort of inspired a solution. It was a problem that inspired a solution. And then once we had that solution, that inspired a lot of other stuff. Sometimes that's, sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes it's not a case of, oh, I want to, I want to get the character to this point and I'm going to contort things so the character gets to this point. Sometimes it's like the character is in this point and I want to get them out of it. Is a way. Oh, and now I can do this and this and this and this and this and this and, you know. And that's kind of how the model hog has been. Everything we do suggests new possibilities. And then we follow those possibilities. And, you know, eventually we're going to sort of cap it off. But it's, that's, that's pretty much how the plot grew. It grew out of previous developments, right from the start. Then we really went into the weeds on Hulk lore. One of the things I really love about Immortal Hulk, especially as someone who remembers significant moments in Hulk's history, but I hadn't actually read a Hulk comic regularly before Immortal Hulk, is the balance Al Ewing strikes between being accessible to new comic readers while paying off long-hanging plot threads for old, die-hard Hulk fans. For example, a while ago Paul Jenkins introduced Hulk's Devil Hulk persona, but then he left the book. My friend Sam Noir reminded me that it wasn't until Immortal Hulk that Al Ewing really told us what the deal was with the Devil Hulk persona. So I really want to know how the balance between being accessible to new readers while appeasing longtime fans was struck. It's, it's a tightrope walk. We, we never want new fans and new readers to feel um, like there's a barrier in place. One thing we decided not to do, we decided not to have recap pages. You know, as soon as you open your issue one, that's basically telling you that you should have read previous comic. And the other thing we don't really do is have um, editorial captions. And that was more of a sort of experimental choice. We don't do the thing where we have the asterisk and then a uh, little signpost on you to go and read another comic because we were feeling like that actually sort of puts off new readers. And it is possible if you're curious about something, you know, it's more possible for another to like find out about it, to read up on it. So, you know, it's something I've, I've had before where it's been like, I've got real, I, I've sort of looked at something and been like, oh, that's interesting. And then I've kind of found out that it, it's a callback. This happened a lot in Grandma's Batman. It's like, you know, I found out there was a callback to something. And I think, oh, that's neat. But it's like I've still had that experience of like being a reader and not knowing that. And that not being a barrier. So it is, it is tricky, I find, because 
it is a good feeling when you find out that there's sort of comics in the past that sort of explain what you're reading in the present. I don't think it is a barrier to have all the self continuity there. As long as we we keep it as a kind of reading experience but welcome to a new fans. It's easy to say, it's a little tricky to do. I think there's there's things where we try not to have cliffhangers that are like just here's someone from the past. You know, I don't think there's a single writer out there who's like, Oh yeah, this will be enough. We try and throw in a little extra there so it's it's not just the the devil hog came back and he's sort of playing this role and it has this other personality that comes out and he's on the run from like a man with a gun. With Immortal Hulk leaning into the horror genre so heavily, and including some pretty gruesome scenes of body horror, I was curious to know if there was anything that Marvel wouldn't let Al do, fearing that it would be too R-rated for its usual PG-13 audience. Not so far. Occasionally, we have to tweak the door a little bit. We're, we're usually struggling right up to it. The Hulk's blood is green. That does a lot for us. But I mean, a lot of a lot of the things, a lot of the sort of body horror things, go does, they're not super gory, they're more disturbing. I think, I think we're allowed to be as disturbing as we like. Very occasionally we'll sort of come up blind in terms of the door factor, and, you know, we'll walk it back a couple of places. I've never felt like I'd be prevented from doing things. Many of people have compared Al Ewing's run on Immortal Hulk to that legendary Saga of the Swamp Thing series by Alan Moore. Not just because the two writers are British, and I think they sound quite similar, but because of the way both series reinvent these classic monster characters for mature readers. I wanted to know if Al knew about the comparison to Swamp Thing and Alan Moore, and what he thought of it. I mean, well, it's very flattering, first of all, it's a massive compliment. It was sort of what we were going for as well, in that part of the brief was we'd like to do something that is very different in tone from what had come before. You know, that wasn't necessarily going to be like the exact moment that we struck, but I think Marvel wanted something that was a swing of the pendulum, that just had a very upbeat, uh, light-hearted mold, but with a, a fan favorite character that he loved. And now they were kind of brick by brick banner. So they wanted to go a little dark, they wanted to go in a different direction. Um, I, I think ideally a different direction from like all previous old comics. So in that sense, it was very much that kind of sort of thing style B. The aim when you do a comic is always to do a good one. You know, that really works. So if that, that we are being compared to like these great comics, it's both very flattering and also very, very kind of gratifying on the level of we have succeeded in the job we gave ourselves. But also, comparing it to that particular comic, kind of means we've sort of succeeded in that job as well. If, if people are getting similar feelings, then that means we've achieved the kind of tonal shift that we set out to do. Though I knew he'd be tight-lipped about this, I absolutely couldn't leave the interview without talking about Avengers Fantastic Four Empire, Marvel's latest event. He's working on it with Dan Slott, as I said off the top. I wanted to try to see what he would say about it and whether he would tease the fans with some tidbits. There's a lot of stuff I absolutely can't say because it's going to surprise you and it's going to shock you. There are things which, you know, fans might have guessed, there are things which fans absolutely haven't that I've not seen anybody guess. 
As you can hear, I didn't get very far on that question, so I decided to switch gears and ask him what it was like tag-teaming on a book and co-writing it. I mean, it's been tough, you know, these big crossover, there's always a lot of work that goes into them. It's been very good writing, writing on like Dan and Tom and Shannon and Martin on the editorial front. These are all names that will be familiar when you say, yeah, Tom Curtis, we've had a great editorial team. That's very good as a kind of writing partner to kind of there's a lot of beats in there that are sort of very big and very epic. Some of them epic in terms of like this huge spectacle, this big widescreen thing. Some epic in a much more sort of personal way. So like there might be kind of sort of epic levels of, you know, heartbreak or uh, emotional stuff, as well as, you know, all of the giant spaceships that we're going to be trying to use. So, so kind of on all levels, there's sort of something to really get my teeth into. So that's, that's very good. Well, there you have it. There's my interview with Al Ewing. I hope you enjoyed it. I promise, you know, at some point, we will get Al Ewing in the studio, or maybe I'll interview him at a convention in person. Al, if you're listening, I'd love to have you back, and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble was written and hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, with announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. We had special guest audio editing this week by Kent Lofsgaard and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.